crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brett Nuktagal. I'm not in Jerusalem today. I'm actually in the United Kingdom at the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College, just north of Stratford-upon-Avon. And I'm here with uh, Christopher Eames, one of our writers. Hi, Chris. So one of my favorite things to do in Jerusalem is to go to the biblical zoo. I've got a couple of young kids, and um, it's interesting seeing the the growth in the awareness of a child uh, as time goes on, uh, seeing different animals. And um, what I've been amazed by at that, that at that zoo is the sheer variety of animals that are there. This is meant to be a zoo that showcases the animals of the Bible. And as I'm walking through there, I'm like, is that animal in the Bible? I can't believe that animal is in the Bible. But sure enough, I think by far the majority of them are actually there in the Bible. But then the question comes from others, of course, is, is the Bible accurate in its description of those animals? And Chris is here. He's going to help us out in answering that question. Uh, he's written a couple of articles for Watch Jerusalem, one that's been published a couple of weeks ago on camels. We're going to talk about that first. And then we'll talk about some other animal species, unusual animal species that the Bible notes as being a part, and some of them a critical part of the biblical narrative, and talk about whether there's actual proof for those animals at the time at which the Bible was written. Uh, referring to the period in which those um, those biblical stories took place. But first, I want to talk about camels, because it is absolutely infuriating to me to read uh, current articles of current research by biblical scholars, so-called university professors, not just from Tel Aviv University, although we tend to pick on them the most, that want to say that the use of camels in the book of Genesis is anachronistic, meaning that, well, maybe you can describe that for us and describe the current debate. Sure. Well, uh, this idea about camels being anachronistic or uh, belonging to a period other than what is portrayed, it's it's been around for about a century now, uh, really popularized in the early 1900s. And basically, they're saying that uh, the period, the early period of the biblical account, the time period of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we know camels are associated with them, that this early period is anachronistic or written long after the date because camels hadn't been domesticated at this point in time uh, in the early second millennium BCE. So, so the the general idea is that the Bible was written long after the fact, long after the Bible even says it was written. So, so this idea is is that the Bible was written during the first millennium BCE, and it's just an anachronism. When it's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the the biblical authors didn't know that camels obviously weren't domesticated at that time period, or so they assume. Yeah, this is one of the big pieces or big points by Wellhausen, one of the founders of the documentary hypothesis. And he basically said, well, since the earliest you know biblical writing we had was probably from David's time, that's what he saw it, and people have pushed it later than that, 
Um, he said that the culture that we find from the book of Genesis, the, 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 the stories that are told, it's basically the reality that existed during King David or Solomon's time that is put back on an earlier generation. And they couldn't have known about the cultures of that day. They couldn't have known about Abraham's time, and they've filled in Abrahamic stories with the culture of the 10th or 9th century. And camels were around at that time. We know that they were used, as you've got in this article, in the 10th and 9th century. Um, but people would say that they weren't in existence in the Levant during this time period. I'm just going to quote from uh, this uh, press release from Tel Aviv University, and then I'd like you to talk about some of the errors um, that are some of the false claims that are made in it. This is what was said recently. This is, um, how long ago was this, Chris? Uh, 2014. 2014, so out. not yeah. long ago. Uh, quoting your article here of the press release. It says this, Now, Dr. Erez ben Yosef and Lida Sapir Hen, probably butchering that, of Tel Aviv University's Department of Archaeology and Near Eastern Cultures, have used radiocarbon dating to pinpoint the moment when domestic domesticated camels arrived in the southern Levant, or this area of, of uh, around ancient Israel in the south, pushing the estimate from the 12th to the 9th century BCE. The findings, published recently in the journal, journal uh, Television Journal, further emphasize the disagreements between the biblical texts and verifiable history, and define a turning point in Israel's engagement with the rest of the world. In addition to challenging the Bible's historicity, this anachronism is direct proof that the text was compiled well after the events it describes. So that's what they say. So what have they discovered and in, as, as far as the use of camels? And we'll then talk about what the, how the Bible describes camels being used. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, the, the general idea uh, before their uh, conclusions were released was that camels became domesticated sometime around 1100 BCE throughout the Levant. And what these two researchers uh, wanted to show what was to, to more narrowly pinpoint it to a date. And so that they did with the 930 BCE date. Now, these researchers were uh, excavating for, I believe, a number of excavations in the Timnar Valley, which is a, a really significant early copper mine area. We've mentioned this in, in other articles on Watch Jerusalem, really interesting area. Anyway, these Timnar mines, they're situated within the Aravar Valley, and and basically these researchers... So this is just north of it a lot, I guess, probably like right. 40 or 50 kilometers, something yep. like that? Right in the, the big desert, big, big, uh, wide-open Arava Valley that leads into Israel from uh, the the southern uh, part, peninsula of, of Arabia. So basically these these researchers went in there, they went through all the strata in, in their excavations they did, trying to find where the... Uh, there were signs of camel domestication. Now, with camels, you can tell from the bones, lesions on the bones, and the way they were buried, and and basically the gender profile as to whether or not they've been domesticated. So the first signs in their excavation uh, that they could find of camel domestication were from 930 BCE. And if they did find camels before then, dating to before then, but they believe those just to have been a few wild camels that uh, that died and got buried. So suddenly, for some reason, at 930 BC onwards, you have this influx of camels being used for transportation. Now, camels are amazing. They're just fantastic things for transporting goods. So 
if camels had already been domesticated, why wouldn't they be using them before that time period? That's, that was their thinking. So, okay, their idea was camels must have only just been domesticated, uh, and, and they extrapolate this to the whole Levant, that, that okay, it was only at 930 BC onwards that camels, domesticated camels, were brought to the Levant. Um, so we're talking about the area of Lebanon, probably right. southern Syria, all through Israel down towards Egypt. Not in Egypt, um, but that is the Levant. That's right. And, uh, and the researchers uh, associate this with the Egyptian invasion of King Shishak, which is actually documented throughout, uh, well, in the Bible, and, and the archaeology helps to prove the account of what happened there. And so the researchers take a look at this. They say that camels, okay, across the whole Levant, they were only domesticated from 930 BCE onwards. Now this causes them to, causes a problem. Uh, so they will say for the biblical uh, believers, uh, because Abraham is described as owning camels, Jacob is described as owning camels. Primarily, these two individuals uh, up to a thousand years earlier. So hence the anachronism. Uh, and and so they've made this case that that the, the that the Bible has to be false based on this that camels weren't domesticated, but actually their research helps to strongly prove the Bible. Actually, when you look deeply into it, and that's what we've done on Watch Jerusalem with this article, camels proof that the Bible is false because they ignore quite a few claims in the Bible and they don't actually turn to scripture at all like that press release you just read right. just straight out claims the Bible is false doesn't turn to any scripture maybe I'll just read something that's towards the end of your piece and then you can go back and and uh, look at some of the proof for it because I think it just clarifies what you're what you're saying here you say towards the conclusion you say many archaeologists and scholars uh, career is built on undermining the accuracy of the Bible, which is true. They've got to come up with a new thing. Critics are quick to pillory the biblical account with any new piece of evidence, uh, contrary evidence, without even considering what the biblical accounts actually says. Conclusions are based on a mere assumption of the biblical text. And certainly that is the case with Levantine camels, because as you say, their evidence actually confirms it. We're not, we're not saying that what they've excavated and what their, their conclusion for this southern area of, of the Levant isn't accurate in terms of what they found. Yeah, they're probably right. They are right. That heavy domesticated camel use did really take off at the end of the 10th century. That, conf- that really does fit with the biblical narrative as well. But they're extrapolating those findings on the rest of the biblical text without actually telling us what does the Bible say? How does Abraham use camels? How does Jacob use camels? Uh, What does the Bible say about that? Right. Well, this is the interesting thing. The Bible hardly mentions camels, actually, uh, before this time period that they've found them. And and any time it does mention camels, like it mentions it uh, with regard to Abraham and Jacob, it lists a whole bunch of their possessions, and it always puts camels right at the end or near the end of their list of possessions as their kind of last and least uh, of their possess- possessions. So they're only mentioned in seven separate verses along with uh, throughout the chapter of Genesis 24, which is more specifically talking about a journey of one of uh, Abraham's uh, servants. Now, the the key thing to note is that Abraham wasn't from the Levant. Right. His family was not from the Levant. He was from Mesopotamia originally, southern Iraq. And 
it, it has been well documented and well known that camels were already domesticated in uh, Mesopotamia up to 2,000 years prior to this 930 BCE date. There, there's a whole bunch of different artifacts relating to this. Uh, I won't go through all of them. You can read about that in our article, but artifacts, say, on a plaque or inscriptions talking about domesticated camels. And, and nobody really denies this, right? I hope that uh, not, camels... Not to my knowledge. So we've got camels being domestic, domesticated and used in Mesopotamia, and we also have camels being used and domesticated in um, Egypt, right? Earlier right. than Levant. Right. Uh, so for these Mesopotamian uh, artifacts, they go right back to about 2500 BCE is when they've been dated. And this is the precise area that uh, Abraham came from. And we know the Bible says Abraham went across to Canaan, long, long journey. And it would make sense for him to take a camel herd for such a long journey like that. There is another passage in the Bible where it describes Abraham receiving camels from the Egyptians. And there have also been uh, discoveries pointing to very early camel domestication in Egypt. Uh, again, you can, you can read the article for the details, but carvings and that type thing dating to about 2500 BCE again. So roughly the same period. Uh, one artifact was even dated as far back as uh, 3000 BCE. That's a kneeling camel with, with a container on its back showing a... Uh, a, a type of figurine of, of a domesticated camel. So you've got these really early artifacts, and it just beggars belief to to assume that, okay, you've got all these domesticated camels in Egypt and Iraq, and that over the course of 2,000 years, domesticated camels never crossed into the Levant. Right, That's and here a we real are, stretch. Got, you know, massive trade routes between the two centers of civilization being Egypt and Mesopotamia. And to think for those long overland journeys, um, camels wouldn't have been taken. That is ludicrous. Of course they would have been taken. And to think then that some of those camels wouldn't have been, you know, stationed in the, the Levant for at least a period of time mm-hmm. is is kind of outlandish to, to believe that would be the case. Right. And and like I mentioned, Genesis 24 is the key camel account, really, in, in the early pages of the Bible. And that describes the, the trip of Abraham's servant to the city of Haran, which, again, was a long-distance journey deep into uh, Mesopotamia. So it makes sense, again, right, for him to, to take 10 camels. To find Isaac a- wife right right and so yeah they're traveling all the way up there as you said to northern haran so we're here in northeastern uh syria uh, close to the iraq or not necessarily on the iraqi border but that's how far they're going to find a bride uh for isaac and yeah makes sense again you're going up there to um to take some camels with you (laughs) right on this journey yeah that's right and and another thing that these researchers generally ignore uh again we mentioned they base their findings on the timna uh timna mine area the the arava valley and and to extrapolate this wild conclusion that domesticated camels did not exist across the whole Levant based on this one little area is really a stretch when actually we do have archaeological discoveries that point to early camel domestication in the Levant. 
And this has most significantly been found from the city of Alalak, which which is in the Levant. It's on the northern end of the Levant. But these date quite early as well to the 17th century BCE, 18th century BCE. You've got a, a cylinder seal depicting a camel with two riders on it. You've got an inscription that actually... Uh, it's a food ration for a camel within the city. It lists food rations to be given to the animals mm-hmm. in the city, and it includes a camel, obviously, a domesticated camel. So really interesting discoveries. I think the uh, researchers do try to play those down for some reason. I don't know how you can do that, but again, you can look at the, artic- at the article we've written and that, that I've written and, and see some of these uh, artifacts and then make your mind up uh, for yourself. It really reminds me of, um, even this is kind of off topic, but it reminds me of another piece that you've written about the book of Daniel and how people, when they when they uh, claim that the book of Daniel was written way after the fact, they, they say, they just throw out this claim that, wow, um, Daniel uses Greek words, Greek words in the book of Daniel, and Greek wasn't the lingua franca for another couple hundred years. So it shows that since he knows those Greek, all these so-called Greek words, that the book was written a couple hundred years after, when they fail to give the evidence. Okay, which Greek words? How prevalent were those Greek words? Mm-hmm. Were those few Greek words, not 400 of them, but just how many of us? Three, three of them. Three of them, and then two of them were found dating to either Daniel's period or hundreds of years before. So I think the earliest was 200 years before him. So there's only one that hasn't been proven from an early context, but scholars generally agree that we've only got about 10, 15% of original classical Greek material. Right. So you've got one Greek word in there that seems to be early, or we haven't found more proof for it yet, but it's of something very specific related to a, a musical, musical instrument. instrument, right? Yeah. And so it's not like an everyday everyday piece of piece of language. And so they're going to base their claim that the, that the book of Daniel was written hundreds of years after... Because it has Greek words in it, but they don't go and tell us, okay, it's one Greek word or a couple of Greek words. It's the same with camels. They just say the camels are a big part of the story in the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. and they weren't domesticated heavily um, in the Levant until hundreds of years after. Therefore, the Bible was false. But it's so much more nuanced than that. Right. This is just a good reminder for people to, whenever you have a question about this, when somebody's claiming that the Bible is false or there there is an anachronism of something, the first thing to do is what? I haven't prepped Chris with this, but I hope he answers what I think he's <laughs> going to answer. Well, the first thing to do is be objective about it, at least, and and uh, consider the biblical text consider and consider the biblical what, you're, text. What, what you're finding. And that's just what Dr. Alot Mazard uh, does. You've heard a lot about that on this program. She gets pilloried for it, again, to use that word, um, for, for considering the biblical text. And she's not religious, but she at least considers it because it's a historical document and it makes sense to consider this, the historical documents as you would for any other culture, the works of Homer, the works of Manetho, whatever. Uh, you just you at least read it. You don't assume what it says. Right. This is how you conclude your um, piece. It says here, in those cases where archaeology has purportedly disproved the Bible, it has really only been disproved. Uh, it really, sorry, it has really only disproved people's misconceptions of the Bible. That's what you have to do first. Go back, read what the Bible actually says yourself. 
and then stack it up against the evidence in the most subject, uh, objective manner possible. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will leave camels and talk about some other interesting animals that the Bible describes. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm here talking to Christopher Eames, one of our writers, and he has written an article on the animals of the Bible. It is up right now on the website, and I'll be leaving a link to it so that you can get uh, all this information and anything that you miss in this interview about it. Um, We're talking about the different animals in the Bible and some of the more weird animals in the Bible in the sense that you don't expect them to be in the Middle East, or you don't expect them to be in Israel. Maybe they're not there right now. Um, But Chris is going to talk about a few of these. Apparently, there are about a 100 different creatures in the Bible, and the five or six we're going to talk about are um, ones that you just don't, you don't see there today, mostly. And the first I'd like you to cover is the use of lions in the Bible. All right. Well, lions are referenced over 150 times in the Bible. Really important biblical animal. They're referenced quite a lot uh, in the context of the wider Middle East, but also Israel specifically. I mean, David killed a lion. You had Samson fighting with a lion. And so it seems a bit strange, lions in Israel, but actually lions did once uh, really thrive in and around the Holy Land. And this species of lion was known as the Asiatic lion. It's about the same size as the African lions of today. Currently, they only exist in uh, one specific state in India. So these lions back in the day used to used to roam the really the entire upper, upper Middle East. And for Israel, they went. Ex- they're believed to have gone extinct around the 12th century uh, CE. So just so 800 years ago, not, not about 800 years ago. And actually, they still continued to exist uh, around, I believe, the region of Iraq and Iran, right up to the uh, 20th century, uh, up until that that late of a period. So these are, or were, really impressive beasts. Uh, again, about the same size as, as Central African lions. Uh, one beast reportedly killed by an Indian uh, emperor weighed up to 700 pounds or about th- uh, 300 kilograms. So that just gives you some idea of, of the type of creature these were that, that David faced when he was a youngster and and that Samson faced. Yeah, I, th- I just a couple of references that come to mind. Um, you even have uh, in the book of Joshua, when they're talking about him taking the promised land, um, God says, I want you to take it bit by bit, and you're going to dwell in this small patch of land, not the entire place, because I don't want the place to be overrun by wild animals that could actually you know, really threaten the population, no doubt talking about lions like this. And then the same type of thing happens uh, when um, when you've got the northern tribes of Israel in 720, they go into captivity, and the land itself is largely left. And you have, during the next 30 or 40 years, wild animals... Um, 
living there and growing in population to the point that the Samaritans, when they come in there from from Babylon, they're like, "What in the world are we going to do about all these all these wild animals? They're tearing us apart. We need to contact the former people that live here, learn about their gods, so that we can <laughs> figure out how to deal with these wild animals." And so this is a these lions, they must have actually, lions and maybe some of the other animals here, predatory animals, actually played a part in the foreign policy and internal policy of the Israelites in this, in this, in this area. Okay, what else do we talk about here? You've got, uh, you've got bears. Are bears, they're in the Bible. Yep, they certainly are. Again, David killed a bear and also with the account of the prophet Elisha, two bears came on the scene and attacked a, a couple of wild or a whole group of wild youths that were harassing him. Uh, but but the bear, bear on, uh, of all creatures in Israel, well, yes, there was a, a, a species of bear that lived in the, in the region and actually still continues to live in the wider region, not in Israel to this day. The species is known as the Syrian brown bear, the Syrian brown bear. This is the smallest uh, species of the brown bear bear family but they still can weigh up to uh, 550 pounds they're about still they're still kilograms. big they have them at the biblical zoo and they walk around strut their stuff with their huge claws and yeah they're right dangerous. you wouldn't want to be attacked by them but they they do still live within the region of turkey iraq iran uh, i believe there was a sighting a couple of years ago in the wild in uh, either syria or lebanon so they're still very much living in the wild uh, in those areas, they're incredibly rare, that close to Israel. But within Israel itself, you'll only see them at the zoo. They are extinct uh, currently in Israel. Okay, the next animal that you have here is mentioned six times in the Bible, and that is a leopard. What, what can you tell us about that? Well, these leopards of the species actually do still exist within Israel, um, surprisingly. We... The both of us have done a desert walk in Israel. We didn't see any of these leopards. <laughs> Thankfully. Thankfully, it was yeah one of the uh, one of those night style tours. Uh, but this species of leopard was known uh, is known as the Judean desert leopard. It's also known as the Arabian uh, leopard, and so they are native to Israel and then south of Israel, so around the Arabian Peninsula, so Saudi Arabia, Yemen. I believe they might go as far across as Oman. Um, so this species is the smallest of the leopard family, and they're nearing extinction. There's there's estimated about 200 of these in the wild, and they're really beautiful creatures, actually. If you if you look at pictures of them, they have fairly longish hair on, on their bodies, so really beautiful, uh, beautiful creatures still, as I say, roaming about Israel to this day. All right, there's another couple of animals that um, that you mentioned here. I think it's like a kind of a different category just because um, the Bible, again, critics of the Bible have used the, the his, this event, uh, one of these events, to talk about how the Bible is in, is got to be false because how in the world is this possible? And it's a good... Um, it's good to go through this case because it reminds us of what we talked about in the first segment about how you really need to go and look at what the Bible actually says. And this is, um, we're, I'm referring to the use of the Bible talking about foxes, and particularly the example of Samson, when Samson ties together 300 foxes by their tails, right? Something like that. Right. Um, what can you tell us about that? Okay, well, the account is in Judges 15, and Samson captures 300 foxes and ties them together in pairs, and then 
uh, ties them to a, each pair to a torch, lights the torch, sends them through the Philistine fields, and burns them to a crisp. So this now, is probably not something that the animal uh, lovers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's for sure. The story they would appreciate. That's for sure. Now, this story in particular gained some criticism from a very famous uh, scholar and biblical religious critic, Voltaire, the the 18th century French writer, and. Uh, he actually says about it, uh, this is a quote from his The Questions of Zapata, I beg you to tell to tell me by what dexterity Samson took 300 foxes, tying them together tail by tail, put a firebrand in the midst between the tails, and set on fire the corn of the Philistines. Basically continues to ridicule, ridicule this biblical account. How on earth could Samson have captured 300 of an animal that is a very solitary animal? Right. You see a fox, you're not going to see another fox nearby, I guess, unless it's mating season or something like that. So really, it's, to the critics, this is a real impossible account, real outlandish account. But as as I describe in the article, Voltaire makes the classic critic's mistake by rushing to judgment. Uh, the Hebrew word used here, shual, uh, didn't actually refer to foxes at all, but it refers to a member of the fox family, the jackal. Now, foxes aren't. Um, if I, I, I don't know, I don't remember seeing a fox in Israel. Like. Right, foxes uh, basically they don't have jackals throughout Europe. So the Europeans come along, they see the Bible, and they basically label a fox with this word because it's something familiar to them. It, it, okay, this must mean fox, but that's not the case. This this biblical word actually refers to jackals, and jackals do hunt and congregate in large groups. So it makes a lot more sense. You can you can kind of get an idea of what, what Samson must have done. He probably put together some really big traps, somehow captured the these foxes in large groups. So still it was quite a feat. Samson was an incredible man. Right. It's and, still it's still right. <laughs> it's still uh it still uh, defies some logic. Well, not necessarily logic, but it's like that would have been very hard to do, regardless. Right. Three catching three hundred of any animal, but yeah, what whatever that uh, Samson did of this type, he was given divine strength for it and and divine assistance. Uh, but three hundred solitary foxes, you would have had to spend a lifetime finding those. But actually, the Bible reveals that they are jackals, which which do hunt, uh, hunt and congregate together in large groups. So again, this is a, a reminder that before we can be too quick to judge the Bible's accuracy based on our own understanding, bringing our own 21st century views upon the words that are probably used in English, if we're reading it in English, you need to go back and see what the Bible says. Think about it as it, as it as it was describing the events of a day we are unfamiliar with, and also going back sometimes to even look at the original Hebrew words and uh, seeing what they meant, so we can add that color and understanding um, to to our understanding of what the Bible actually says. So Chris, in this article, he goes through a number of different animals as well, including the famous behemoth in the Book of Job. I'm not even going to go through that. I'm going to get people to go to this article and uh, read that for themselves. Is the behemoth real? Well, you can uh, read up on proof about that. We actually have a separate article about that as well that, that goes into more proof about that that Chris links to in his article. Well, I think that is where we're going to leave it. As you do in your article here, uh, this is how you conclude your article. And I think it's it's something that is just um, a 
a good way, a, a broader perspective on the Bible. You say this, in summary, the Bible is history's most misunderstand understood and maligned book. But believe it or not, it certainly has to be regarded as history's most incredible work. The Bible truly is a remarkable, dynamic, multifaceted book. It contains history, prophecy, laws, poetry, advanced scientific and medical knowledge. We should do a program about that, actually, how right. science has uh, scooped, it definitely scooped, uh, uh, the Bible has scooped the scientists, as you've written on that before. And he said only, uh, and then he said, and as described in part above, it is a zoologist and botani- uh, botanist dream in describing ancient flora and fauna as well. The Bible is the complete picture, and it produces stories that are accurate to the time from which they were written and to the time which they uh, purport to describe. And we have proof in our day, proof that didn't exist 200, 300 years ago, um, just because of the field of science and archaeology. They prove the Bible. They do not cause us any type of worry that the biblical narrative, as understood, as in, in originally written, um, that that is being false. Thank you very much, Chris, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for writing these articles. Again, don't just listen to this program. Go to Watch Jerusalem, read the article themselves, look at the actual artifacts that have been discovered showing camels. Yes, camels, domesticated camels from Mesopotamia, from Egypt. And let that guide your understanding, not just what some archaeologist or scientist says that has a mission to produce a narrative contrary to what the Bible says. If you'd like to write us some feedback to the program, you can do so by writing your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. And again, please go ahead and read these articles. You can also request our booklet. It's quite small, but it packs a punch. It's called Proof of the Bible or The Proof of the Bible. It's written by Herbert W. Armstrong, and it goes through a number of different irrefutable proofs that show that the Bible, although it does include poetry and beautiful descriptions of flora and fauna, um, it also uh, is God's word and has... Um, it's not just written by men, but it contains divine truth and prophecy that no man could ever come up with. That is really the strongest proof for the Bible's historicity and its and its um, being the Word of God. So please do go ahead and request that. It's called The Proof of the Bible. And you can do that by going to the Literature tab on the website. Thanks very much for listening in today. Again, we're coming to you from England, where we'll be for the next two weeks. Perhaps I'll have Chris on here again. Um, But please stay with the show and we'll talk to you next week.